0: Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we
1: are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. You know, I always pretend that's for me. Um, It's a little bit different writing an introduction for, you know, I shouldn't say your everyday author, because none of our authors are everyday authors, but writing an introduction for, you know, a regular book writer, and then writing an introduction for, like, well, like for Scott Ian. (laughs) I will say the most interesting thing for me, and this was very personal and very silly, is that I was like, wow, Scott Ian and my mom have something in common. Another thing I thought I wouldn't ever get to say, (laughs) and that they're both Yankees fans. Um, So that was really exciting. Um, But really, you guys are not here to listen to my one-woman comedy act this evening. You are here for the one and only Scott Ian. So why don't we give him a warm welcome?
0: Thank you. So, I didn't know what I was going to do tonight. Um, usually I read something from my book, but I picked this one instead. <laughs> a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Episode, Best Friends Forever. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's from my son. Although I am really excited about the new Star Wars. I've been... Talking about it with everyone I know, and uh, I was at uh, Boston Comic-Con a couple of weeks ago, and they were actually selling t-shirts that said, in JJ We Trust. Like, that's how, like, how, like, neurotic people are over, you think it's going to be good? You know, and I just keep saying, it can't be worse. (laughs) That's my Star Wars bit. (laughs) Um, yeah. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me here. Um, I'm going to do a and a with you guys. So if you have any burning questions that you've always wanted to ask me or things you wanted to tell me, now is the time. So please don't be shy. Otherwise, I'll just have to talk at you for an hour and um, – which I probably won't have any problem doing either. So either way, but this is your chance. If there's anything you've wanted to say, and I'm sure that will open many, many doors into other worlds as well. So, who's gonna have the balls to go first? What's the wi- who's the wildest band that you with? Because I mean, everyone from Public Enemy and to Iron and- Wildest meaning like partying, or wildest like uh, what do you mean? The weirdest shit that's happened. Um, Hmm. Good question. Uh, We're going to be here a while. I don't know. Um, I mean, Public Enemy are all pretty much normal dudes except for Flavor Flav, of course. He is yeah hey, what you see is what you get that's no that's not an act um, when that when we did that tour together and you know and this was still early nineties, so the days of groupies and things like that it was still pretty much happening you know kind of the residual eighties thing was still going on. And we had, you know, we had a band bus and a crew bus, so a lot of shenanigans would go on on our crew bus. And when Flavor found out that girls were taking their clothes off on a regular basis in our crew bus, he fucking lost his mind. Because <laughs> that shit didn't happen on rap tours. Like, girls taking their clothes off and taking Polaroid pictures. You know, like, he had never seen anything like that, so he basically spent the next six weeks on our crew bus. Just... <laughs> He was like, Scotty, do you know what they're doing? I'm like, uh-huh. I'm like, yeah, shit's been going on since the 60s, dude. It's, it's rock and roll. <laughs> um, but that's not really wild, because in the context of bands like Motley Crue or GNR or Aerosmith or a thousand other bands that weren't playing thrash metal, we were really, really tame. <laughs> so that's really not all that wild. Um. You know, I I can't say I, I'm trying to think. Even if there was a band that we toured with that I could say it was really well, Pantera, in a different way. You know, just the excess of of you know what those guys used to do as far as drinking was concerned. I, I'd have to say that was the wildest thing I you know for me I, I was ever around because I'm not a drinker like that. And if you've read the book, then you know the story. And if you haven't read the book, you will know the story. But yeah, you know when. We were friends with those guys for years, way before we toured together, since the mid '80s, and uh, and then we spent a couple of months on tour together in like '97, '98, and and I made a commitment to try and keep up with Daryl, and and uh, and I did. That whole story's in the book. So, um, but uh, yeah, that's the prob- That was probably the wildest band. So, uh, I, I don't know why I didn't think of that immediately. So my brain's a little. I just I just landed, um, but uh, yeah, Pantera for sure. The excess and being around those guys at that point in time was unlike anything I had ever personally done in my life, or you know, um, had seen firsthand. You know, I'd partied with those guys, but it usually would be if they came through New York, or we were going through Dallas, and you'd spend one night or two nights together. But to spend a couple of months in basically in the same room as those dudes. That's it's pretty intense (laughs) to say the least. I can actually drink now and not, you know, lose my mind because Daryl taught me how to drink like a responsible human being. (laughs) Thanks, dude. (laughs) Who's next? Gene Simmons. The big four at Yankee Stadium. What, I'm repeating the questions because they're recording this for a podcast thing. So um, that's why I'm repeating the questions back at you. Uh, what was it like for me uh, to do the big four at Yankee Stadium? That, for me, was the high point. That's it. Uh, I said it after that show. It's all downhill from here. It's I'm done now. Like I might as well retire. It's what could be better than this? There is no better venue. I don't, unless we ever got to come back and like headline Yankee stadium. But, um, you know, for me, that's, that really is the high point. There was no, um, and there is no other place in the world. I could say I would rather play, or that would mean more to me than playing Yankee stadium, just growing up in New York and being a a Yankee fan since I was a little kid. And, and uh, uh, and standing on a stage out in center field where so many of my heroes have done their job, and then I got to do my job, it was kind of a mind fuck for me, you know, to say the least. And uh, yeah, something we never expected. Not that we didn't think we'd ever be, let's say, big enough to play Yankee Stadium, but just uh, they don't really do a lot of shows there. Yankee Stadium like generally if there's a stadium show in the New York City area it it would be Giant Stadium or which I think is called Met Life Stadium now or something but where the Giants play or even Shea where the Mets play um, Yankee Stadium rarely 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 does shows like I think before us uh, before us before the Big Four like the last two shows that had been in there in a long time was like Billy Joel and the Pope like for real like they just don't do shows there so it's just it was a really special thing even because that's the thing it was like when we got a call saying alright there's going to be a big four New York show I immediately assume it's going to be Giant Stadium because that's generally where all the big concerts are which would have been fucking amazing you know wow we're finally playing a stadium in our, like our hometown and, uh, and then our manager says looks like it's going to be Yankee Stadium and I said to him don't fuck with me You can't fuck with me like that because if you say that to me now and then it isn't Yankee Stadium, I'm going to be bummed no matter what it is. I'm going to be super bummed on the show. And if it's fucking Shea Stadium, I'm going to boycott. I'm not even going to play it. I said, you can't put this show where the losers play. I apologize to any Met fans. I actually, I'm sure you all know who Eddie Trunk is here, right? Everyone here know who Ed Trunk is? Okay, of course. So, he's a big Mets fan. And me and Eddie have been friends for 30 years. And I actually fucking called him out on stage at Yankee Stadium. And I said, that's right. Yankee Stadium, not fucking Shea, where those losers play. Hear that, Ed Trunk? In front of 50,000 people. And Eddie was just, he was like excited and bummed at the same time. (laughs) But, uh that shit runs deep in New York Rockies don't have a rival team here in the American League for you know like for you guys to hate on so it's you know it, that shit runs deep between Yankees and Mets fans so um yeah it was the most exciting thing I've ever done in in the context of my career yeah it was amazing I, I was so fucking nervous I don't generally get nervous sometimes in certain cities you just have an expectation and you want things to be great but uh in New- and, and that's like playing New York. I always get a little nervous in New York because you just always want it to be really good. And But now we're playing Yankee Stadium, and the, so the nerve factor was really just on a different level that I had never felt before. And uh, we were at the back of the stage, and it's like five minutes before we're going on. And uh, I was fucking – I was like locked up. Like my hands cramped up, and I, I I'm not joking. Like cramped up like – I can't move and I was having like pins and needles in my forearms and and I was just so nervous and, and I didn't know what I was going to do because I, I, I'm i trying to fucking warm up on my guitar. My fingers aren't working right and that's making me more nervous and I'm just trying to calm down and, and like Pearl was there, my wife, and she's like, just, it's cool, it's cool, just, you know, you're going to be fine and I was like, Fuck, like, oh my God, I've never felt like this and, and Randy Johnson was there. Uh, the baseball pitcher because since he's retired he's become a professional rock photographer and uh, so he was there standing there and I said hey man you've been in high pressure situations before in this fucking same building you know like what do you do what did you do when this fucking base is loaded and you gotta strike a dude out like how do you how do you fucking sweat through that shit and and uh, he just like goes, you just fucking put your head down and go to work just go do your job and you know Randy Jall, six foot ten fucking dude is looking down at you and <laughs> with that fucking look that face and uh, I'm like alright I'm gonna go do that and fucking intro tape starts and I w- walk out and we start caught in a mosh and the fucking crowd goes nuts and I just started crying I was like all this emotion came out of me so I'm on stage like fucking headbanging to caught in a mosh and crying at the same time <laughs> just like <laughs> It was the weirdest thing. It was just such a release of energy and kind of like this cathartic experience of, I don't know, what was that, 2011. So actually 30 years of being in Anthrax came pouring out of me like this is what I had been working towards for 30 years. So it was was quite the epic, epic thing for me. So Yankee Stadium. (laughs) Uh, Next. Uh, he asked, He said, follow-up question regarding my Yankee fandom, and have I forgiven A-Rod yet? No, I I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. I haven't watched the Yankee game in three years probably. It's been since I've actually watched the game. I have no idea. I actually asked someone and told me the other day, yeah, Yankee, your boys are doing good. I'm like, who? said, the Yankees, they're in first place. I'm like, F- I have no idea. No, I'm on – in case you don't know what I'm talking about, I've basically been on strike as a Yankee fan because I cannot stand Alex Rodriguez. And uh, so pretty much since 2009, which you think would have been a joyous occasion of them winning the World Series uh, and then turning out to be – well, you know, A-Rod had finally had a good postseason because he was on drugs. So um, if he would have turned around and given his ring back and the Yankees would have said, yeah, it doesn't count, we don't take these rings – That would have been pretty fucking cool. But since that's never going to happen, I decided to go on strike as a Yankee fan. And until A-Rod is off the team, I just won't have anything to do with it because he ruins baseball for me. Literally ruins it. I can't watch it. So, no, I have not forgiven him. (laughs) And if you were from Seattle or Texas, you'd fucking agree with me. The question was, when I first met my wife, Pearl, did I know Meatloaf was her dad? And how? To, if I didn't, how did that conversation come about? Was that the question? <laughs> I did know, yes. I knew because you want to make a strange situation even stranger. I actually, like a couple of months before that tour, I met my wife when Anthrax went out with Motley in uh, the year 2000 we went on this Maximum Rock Tour together and uh, a couple of months before that tour I was editing this SOD DVD and uh, the guy who was editing it with us was actually my wife's husband at the time which and then I just found out I hadn't met Pearl yet but I just knew that this guy Kevin was married to Pearl and Meatloaf was her dad and all this and and Pearl singing backup. That's how I think how it came up. He's like, Oh yeah, you guys are going out with Motley. My wife is singing. She's going to be out on that Motley tour. And uh, Oh, Oh cool. Whatever. And, uh, so things kind of went awry with that guy. And there was a dispute over how much he was getting paid and whatever nuclear blast, the label in Europe ended up having to like pay this guy some money that I didn't think he was supposed to get. And kind of was a dick about it. And anyway, long story short, um, I don't know. I just know I'm going to meet Pearl, and I'm thinking like, oh, it's it's Kevin's wife, and she probably thinks I'm a dick because of this these problems with this DVD, and and uh, you know, so I just kind of felt weird about meeting her in the first show of the tour. Like I, she came up to me backstage, hi, I'm Pearl, you know, and you know, and I was just kind of like this, <laughs> and like just kind of shook her hand, and and like turned my head and didn't say anything, and because I'm thinking like. She, fucking probably hates my guts but then like well she's coming up and saying hi well but is she coming up and saying hi because she's going to fucking give me shit like or like I don't know I'm generally kind of shy around ladies anyway so I just was kind of like uh eh. and uh but then we end up so we start hanging out because that was a sober tour with between well not for Anthrax but <laughs> Megadeth was on that tour too so Megadeth and Motley were both Sober <laughs> you can't nobody you can't see that on the podcast what I just did <laughs> so uh <laughs> so our bus became like the uh the bar, and Pearl and the other backup singer from motley, this girl Marty, uh, they would come hang out with me and Frankie and John Bush. Uh, and have drinks with us every night because they, they there was no booze in the Motley Camp and uh, nor and other and I could say this who, who gives a shit um uh, 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 oh god what uh, fucking total just brain fart right now on the lead guitar and drummer in Megadeth at the time it was um, Al Petrelli and Jimmy DeGrasso thank you Al and Jimmy used to come on our bus every night too <laughs> because they were supposed to be but they're not sober guys but they were supposed to be but they would just come on and you know shoot a bunch of vodka and then spray shit so they wouldn't smell and I was like how's that working for you guys <laughs> but uh Pearl and Marty started hanging out with us and I instantly had a giant crush on this lady and and but I'm like but she's married and then I find out cuz we start talking a little bit more that She's separated. They're not even living together anymore. Like, she's out, and, like, they have nothing. She's, like, the guy's a dick. And I'm like, oh, well, he was totally pulled these shenanigans working on the DVD and whatever. And anyway, so we we become, like, best buds, but I never made any kind of move on it because it's just a bad thing to do in a tour, in that kind of tour bubble, to do something like that. So we just were total drinking buddies. And then Anthrax left that tour early. And then I was home for like five weeks and she was still out on, on tour. But the day she got home, I called her and said, hey, there's a, there's a cool show at the Troubadour High on Fire is playing. You want to go check them out? And that was September 9th, 2000, and we've been together ever since. So if you ever want to take a girl out, take them to High on Fire. and <laughs> It obviously works. It's a good date night. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I obviously knew Meat Love was her dad. So once we start dating, of course, a couple of weeks in, it's time to go meet the parents. <laughs> Meatloaf, <laughs> who I had been a fan of since I was a little kid. I saw him on Bad Outta of Hell in, like, 1978 at Calderon Concert Hall on Long Island, like, when I was 14 years old. So, yeah, I, I, like, you know, it's a little intimidating. And I've seen him in movies and, you know, like it's definitely intimidating, but I understand the pecking order, and, you know, it's, he's the bigger dude, he's the rock star, and it's his house, and it's his daughter, and so I'm just gonna be cool, (laughs) it's bad enough, I'm this guy, walking into his house, (laughs) fucking bald weirdo, with tattoos, and the fucking shit, growing out of his chin, like, I'm sorry, I just saw some underage, kids, just people walk in, so sorry for swearing, um, yeah, you know, I have a four-year-old, though, and people always apologize around. They'll, they'll swear. Around. I'm like, sorry. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, please. My son walks around singing new Anthrax lyrics from the new record you guys haven't heard yet, and I'm just like, that's right. <laughs> you, you fucking yell that F word, boy. I love it. <laughs> um. But yeah, so we go over the house and and we're driving there and I literally had to ask her, what do I call your dad? What do you call him, you know? uh, He goes, uh, Pearl says, oh, everyone calls him meat. Uh, You know, that's meat. I'm like, okay, I get it, you know, because I didn't know. Do you call him Mr. Loaf? (laughs) Meat Loaf? You know, uh, so yeah, meat. Okay, so we meet him and we come in the house and it was pretty much like, kind of like, Dad, this is Scott. And I pretty much got what I gave to Pearl the first time we ever met, which was kind of like. <laughs> and he just, like, takes off across the hall into his office. And I'm thinking, like, I guess that went well. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I didn't get much at the time, basically because unbeknownst to me, Pearl's parents were going through their own kind of crap at the time and were divorced not long after that. So I started dating Pearl right when he was kind of in a bad zone. So it didn't go really well for a while. I wasn't his favorite person in the world. Let's put it that way. Until one night, one night. I won't go into the details, but yeah, I, I just wasn't, uh, and it's, it wasn't really me. I found out after the fact. He was just going through a, a rough patch. And uh, um, one night. Pearl and I had gone out to dinner, and we're we're like walking back into our house. It's like 11:30 at night, and and we're just like having a mellow night. And and uh, phone rings. Uh, like hello, he's like Scott, it's me. Like I'm like it's your dad. He's like what does he want? I'm like I don't know. And, uh, <laughs> Hey, Meat, what what's going on? Hey, so I'm at the Viper Room at this fucking metal shop thing. Which to give you a little backstory. Metal Shop was the band that became Steel Panther and they used to play every Monday night since like 2000. And we were going to those shows way back when, when nobody even knew what it was yet, right? And, uh, and we would talk, we would tell them, you got to come down one Monday night and check out this thing called Metal Shop. It's fucking awesome. And uh, people get up. Steven Tyler got up last week. You, you should come down and get on stage. And, and uh, But he, I was, he's never going to come, right? He's like, I'm at this fucking show. Where are you guys? I thought you came here every Monday. We're like, oh, we decided to take a week off, you know, and, and, uh, well, you get your asses down here. And I look at Pearl, I'm like, I guess we're going to Metal Shop. And we get back in the car and we go to the Viper room, and he's like at a booth with a bunch of people we know, and we end up having this crazy night, and he gets up on the stage and, like, sings fucking Bon Jovi and White Snake with, or something. I, I don't even remember, like, did he even know the words? Like, but all I know is the fucking place went nuts and it was awesome, and, and, uh, me at had a couple of drinks that night, and uh, so I, w- I took his keys away. I was like, "You got to give me your keys. You're not driving home." And I could, I'm like, I couldn't believe I was even saying this to the, like. I'm like, "Where am I getting the balls to do this?" And uh, I was like, "Give me your please, me. You got to give me your keys. You can't drive." I'm fucking fine. I'm like, "No, <laughs> you're not fine." Please. All right, and you know, he hands me his keys. So we we're driving back. Figure we'll just leave our car here, and we're driving his. Car back to his house and uh Pearl's in the back and he's in the front and the whole <laughs> the whole fucking ride back up to his house. He's got his arm around me and he's like, I love you, man. I didn't know what to make of you at first, but I love you. And he's like kissing me and like I was like, I love you too, meat. Like it was like awesome. And ever since that night, like fifteen years ago, it's been fucking great. So um yeah. Interesting, a little weird at first, but then it was awesome. I was just wondering if you could talk about how you came to be on The Walking Dead. Uh, I came to be on The Walking Dead, uh, well, besides my lifelong love of zombies, um, uh, my buddy Greg Nicotero is the executive producer and his company, k does all the effects and he directs them and... So we've been friends since the late 80s. So only – really only because of him is how that door opened because I have my web series thing, Bloodworks, that I do. And so having that little show on the web, we ended up getting access on that set that like the publicist there was telling us, the publicist from AMC is like, you know, we don't even give fucking Rolling Stone or Entertainment Weekly the access that you have. And I'm like, I know. I know, right? That's amazing. Like – so yeah, with Greg, like I mean, I got to be a fucking walker and we got to shoot it and it got to be my little fucking web series, you know, we had access that nobody gets. So, and that's only because of Greg. So, it was and it was awesome. Totally surreal uh, that that happened. Do you still buy all the Stephen King books and if so, what you the last <laughs> I was upstairs looking for any kind of and if there was any weird limited shit that i don't own but they didn't have any um yeah i still buy everything and i've i'm reading finder's keepers right now actually so i'm i'm very up to date i um, all the bands you toured with who was your favorite i forgot to repeat those last questions but maybe they're kind of self-explanatory that last one was he asked me if i still buy stephen king books sorry Of all the different bands I toured with, who was the most fun? Well, Pantera was the most fun, for sure. It was out of control. Um, I was drunk for two months straight, Um, which it was something I had never done in my life. Before that Pantera tour in 97, I wasn't much of a drinker. Once in a while, I'd pick my spots and maybe get drunk on beer or something, but um, I had never even drank a whiskey, really, until that tour. And uh, um, So yeah, I was... I was uh, after 2 weeks into that tour I was able to finish a bottle of Crown Royal on my own and then by a month in I was up to like 2 bottles you know let's say between 5 p.m. and 3 a.m. Um, so yeah it was it was excess that I'd never in never up to my life at that point had experienced nor since cuz soon after I tapered it off because I'm not an alcoholic <laughs> And if I was, I probably would be dead. So, yeah, it was it was insanely fun, and I was out of my fucking mind. And it was a really good time in my life to experience that. Um, but then, you know, also bands like Maiden or Metallica. Anytime we get to go out with those guys, fun in a different way. Just because you know Metallica, we've been friends with since day one, practically, and um, and Maiden is we're on tour with our fucking heroes. I mean, first time we ever toured with Maiden was 1990. And, uh, uh, you know, it was just a mind-blowing experience. We had already met the guys and knew the dudes in Maiden as friends. But you know, it's a different thing where now all of a sudden, like, our band is taken seriously enough to actually go out and open. We fucking played McNichols Arena with Maiden, you know, back then on that tour. Um, so... Yeah, and that was only six years after our first record had come out. So, like, when I look at it now in that time frame, that's a really short amount of time, I feel like. Back then, it seemed like forever. But, like, from 84 to 90, that's six years, and we're opening for Iron Maiden around the world. We spent six months with those dudes. And, you know, for a bunch of 25-year-olds holy shit, you know, like that's really when you realize you're, you truly are living your dreams, your dreams are coming true. And we still get to play shows with Iron Maiden all the time. And uh, I just heard some rumors that maybe we are next year too. So, um, you know, I get excited about that, like probably more so than anything else. Like if, when I hear like we're – even if it's just a festival – You know, and we're not on tour, but like Maiden's headlining and we're on a different stage at a different time of day. It's still super fucking exciting to know that we're playing a show with Iron Maiden. So, um, you know, for me, that would be like the most exciting probably still. The question was, what emotions were running through my head at that first Big Four show in Poland? Um, Oh, it was pretty amazing. You know, just the whole experience. Um, The night before, uh, Metallica put together this dinner that uh, we found out about a couple weeks before the tour was starting that Metallica was having this dinner and all the bands were invited. But no wives... No girlfriends, no crew guys, just the bands. It was going to be the 17 of us, right? The 17 dudes in a room together, and that's it. Nobody else. And then a couple hours in, then if wives and tour managers want to show up, whatever, it's okay. But for the first three hours, nobody else, just the band dudes, and that's it. And initially, I I remember looking at my manager saying – it's kind of weird. Like we all know each other's wives. Everybody knows everybody. It's kind of weird that they it would be exclusive, like that. Like they would exclude the ladies because we all know each other. Um, and my tour our manager was like, I don't know. I'm just I'm just the messenger. This is what came from Metallica's management. And so I called Kirk and I was like, What's the deal? And he goes, Yeah, man. We, you know, we just want to just get all the dudes in a room and just kind of hang out and, and it'll be kind of an icebreaker. I'm like, I get it. Cool. So uh that night we all show up and we're in this room and this restaurant. they had the whole restaurant closed down and it wasn't much bigger than this room the whole place and uh it instantly made sense because once you had all of us just in that room and look we all we all see each other semi-regular, you know, the the guys in the four bands but it's not like we're hanging out on a regular occasion. Uh, I I'm in touch with Kirk regularly, but that's it out of all the bands. I see Carry the most, probably just because, maybe because we both live in LA, and he'll come to our shows, or we seem to tour together quite a bit as well, so but uh, um, it's not like we're all hanging out. So you, you put all of us in that room, and close quarters for three, four hours, and it was just like all the walls just came down, Any preconceived notions you may have had of what the tour was going to be like went away, and it was just the same 17... Well, not everybody was there back in 82 and 83. Obviously, Chris Brodwick wasn't in the band back then, but you know what I mean. The guys that had been there for that long, it instantly just felt like all those years melted away, and we were all just the same kids that we were 30 years ago talking about the same shit and just laughing about the same fucking jokes and a lot of it can you fucking believe this you know that like and it was amazing the conversation in little you'd see little you know you'd just be splinter off and I'd be over here talking to Dave and and Tom or someone would be over and you'd look over and there would be Mustaine and Kirk having a conversation I'd be kind of like you know el- elbow Ellison and just go look at that like that's <laughs> never thought I would see that like that's fucking how fucking rad is that, you know, like, and um, it was just awesome, it was fucking awesome, you know, like so it really did kind of set the tone for the next few weeks because then we when we all showed up the next day for the show, all that bullshit was out of the way, and we were all just ready to play a show, but also this kind of friendship vibe. The whole tour was then based out of the initial friendship that we all had 30 years ago. Not like we're just four bands and we're all here playing a show. And, and I heard that it was James's idea actually initially. And and it was just a really great idea because it really did kind of set a vibe for the rest of those shows. And we all realized we were there. I think, for that reason, as well as the fact that we are these four bands, and people really want to see us all play together, but it was really nice knowing you were showing up for work every day and it 's just like what 's up Like I get to hang out with these dudes every day for the next three weeks like that was fucking awesome and there was a hundred and ten thousand people there. I forgot to mention that fucking Poland one hundred and ten thousand people it was insane you didn 't even see couldn 't see. It was a field. It was an airfield, and you couldn't even see where the the crowd ended. It was mind blowing, you know. Just like like oh my god! Like it was just like you know. You, I remember walking up on the stage. Behemoth opened the show, and I remember walking up on stage to look, and I was like, "Holy crap!" I mean, up until that, day, that was the biggest crowd we ever played in front of. Was that like that show? Like before that was like eighty, only eighty thousand. But uh, <laughs> shit, all over that club gig. But yeah, it was amazing. Any plans for a new S.O.D. material? Asks, any plans for a new S.O.D. material. No. 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 <laughs> we are – we're trying to get our shit together to release a 30th anniversary vinyl of Speaking English or Die on like a double high-quality, super cool-sounding, and we're going to remaster it. And, uh, and um, there's going to be – there's cool new liner notes and some new packaging, but – There's no new material, same shit, Mm -hmm. same 22 minutes. It'll just it's just going to sound better than it has in a really, unless you bought the vinyl in 85 and this is going to sound even better because it's on that. I don't know what they call it. Fucking super fat two discs, you know, it's going to sound awesome. And, um, uh, and there may even be something really, really cool and special coming out on Record Store Day in November um, for SOD, an SOD seven inch that we did a split with another band. And um, but new material, no, no, absolutely not. Sorry. Uh, how are you approached to write music for Game of Thrones and how did that writing process go? Um, I'm our label got a call from HBO. I think, that, I mean, to be totally technical, that's how it, like, someone at HBO called. Separately from that, I'm friends with Dan Weiss, D.B. Weiss, who's one of the showrunners and the guy that co-writes it with David Benioff. We're actually friends. So I then emailed him and said, hey, we just got a call from HBO to to be on this Game of Thrones mixtape thing or whatever they called it. and uh, And he goes, oh, good, 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 because we made a list of bands and you guys were right at the top so i'm glad they reached out and um so yeah that's kind of how that whole thing happened and um yeah they just said we we're putting together a thing and last year we only did hip hop but this year we want to do metal as well and and uh and we said yes immediately cuz besides even if we weren't fans of the show you know we would have been aware of the show enough to say it's something we should be involved in <laughs> From a promotional point of view, when HBO calls and asks you to be involved in something, you generally just say yes, you know. Um, But uh, the fact that Charlie, Frankie, and Joey and I are all massive fans of the show certainly helps. So, um, yeah, we were just super excited. So the idea was that you were supposed to write something from scratch, but there was no way we were going to be able to do that. But we also just – at the time, we had a bunch of music written, but we didn't have lyrics – or anything written for most of our songs at that point. So we had this one piece of music that at the time was like Song 8 or something like that. And uh, um, we just all felt like separately, without even discussing it, an email chain went around. It was like, I think that Song 8 would be the right, and everyone was like thinking the same thing. So just had the right feeling. And then um, HBO sent me this, (laughs) it's cool, They, they sent me this like, Lyrical checklist. Because I, I said, well, what can I write about? And the person at HBO said, anything you want in the, the universe of that universe. And I said, can I write about the Lannisters? They said, yeah, nobody else has written about the Lannisters yet. Sure, you could write about the Lannisters. I said, okay, cool. And then the next day I get this email with like 50 things about the Lannisters. And then even like keywords like incest and money and... <laughs> assholes, and fuck it, you know, all that shit. And um, So, you know, and they said, as many of these words you could get into the lyrics, the better, you know, and I was like, you got it. <laughs> but, uh, so, I was just excited to get to tackle something. I've never, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't want it to be a super obvious thing, like, I wasn't going to be like, we are the Lannisters, you know, like, it wasn't going to be that obvious, but, I think if you're a Game of Thrones fan and you you read the lyrics to the song, you'll get the references I'm making. But if you know nothing about Game of Thrones, it just sounds like anthrax to me because I'm not not really... I mean, yeah, there's references to the hand or things like that. But people are like, what the fuck does that mean? I don't know. But they don't know it's the hand of the king. They don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, I wanted to write it in a way where it wouldn't just be specifically... Game of Thrones although it is and I, I think I, I I walk the fine line with that and, I, and it, and it kind of worked and the title if you don't know it's the closest translation in Latin Soror I- Irumator I'm totally not pronouncing it right I'm sure but it's the closest we can get in Latin to sister fucker <laughs> <laughs> because that was my working title because if you watch Game of Thrones you know what I'm talking about because basically, one of the ma- you know one of the main heroes of that series happens to have sex with his sister quite a bit, and uh, that's what's so great about that show is you could you could totally root for the guy that's sleeping with his sister. How they pull that off, I have no idea. I sh- I should only be able to write so well. Um, so that was the working title. And then they said, well, yeah, there's a little bit of a problem with the title. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I figured that. So then we we got the lat- the closest you could get to the translation in Latin. Because we asked them actually, can you translate it into one of the languages from the Game of Thrones world? And they're like, no, <laughs> we don't know how to do that. What's his face would have to do that for you. Um blanking on his name JRR yeah mar yeah he would have to do that and we're not going to ask him and so so we had it done in latin and that's that's what it means in latin Um uh you said uh 25th anniversary persists to time, right? Yeah. Or 30th? 25. Yes. Sorry. And uh you really liked all the darkness and the anger in that record and can we expect that on on this new record? Um yeah. I would I uh, I would have to say this is a this is a subject matter wise it's definitely a dark and very angry record. I mean, musically, it certainly is. But I, I think lyrically even more so. Um, and mainly because this is the first record I've written with a son in my life. I have a four-year-old. And I first time I ever wrote lyrics, being a father. So when people ask that question, what do you still have angry about? It's very easy to answer that question when you bring a child into the world and all you have to do is <laughs> open the window and take a peek at your fellow mankind. Um, if I wasn't disappointed enough in humanity, you know, bringing a child into this world certainly amplifies that, and I think isolates me more, and you know, basically closes the walls around my little bubble that I already live in even more. I, I you know, I've hated most of humanity most of my life. So if you if you didn't know that then you haven't been paying attention to Anthrax Records. But uh um um yeah, I've always been very much about kind of you know, I've got family and friends and and uh, you know, people that I've met along the way, but outside of that I don't really pay too much attention. I gave up a long time ago. And uh so, having a child makes it even that much worse because then you know you 've got this little helpless dude and uh, and then, what is that guy going to have to face even once he gets old enough to start dealing with it on his own and Of course, you start to realize all the fears your own parents have, and you realize what an asshole you were your whole life to your parents and um, but uh we 're not going to get into all that right now, but a lot of that certainly comes out in the lyrics and a lot of, a lot of evil crap has happened in the last three years, um, which gave me a lot of lyrical fodder. Let's put it that way. I was in Europe the day of those Charlie Hebdo or Hebdo shootings, and man, that hit really close to home. Um, and anytime anything happens like that, Vir- Virginia, what two days ago, um, shit's out of control. On this planet. So, you know, that idea these days of... uh, You know, I've always been a true believer that you're really never safe anywhere. But these days, shit. I mean, that's just... It's more the rule now. Because uh, I hate to be Debbie Downer, but it's just... I expect every day to wake up and read about another, you know, mass murder or terrorist thing or something. It just becomes the expectation now. And I just hate for me or any of you here or if you know to have to ever experience something some kind of senseless insanity like that in your life you know you have nothing to do with shit I've never said boo about anything to anybody and to think that you know someday someone that I know or love or myself might get involved in something like that that's fucking bullshit so that's why I don't leave my house <laughs> except when I have to go to work <laughs> I stay on the mountain where i live and and uh, and um, hang out with my kid <laughs> it 's not that crazy, but you, you know I mean, I think you could all understand we all live on the same planet so but a lot of that is in the lyrics, and that 's my catharsis otherwise i 'd go fucking insane you know if i didn 't have that truthfully, if i didn 't have that catharsis to be able to express myself in the context of anthrax, it would come out in another way. Maybe I'd be writing books. <laughs> Maybe I'd be the fucking asshole with a gun. Who knows? Nobody knows. You know? Um, it, it, you know, you just don't know. But I do have that catharsis. So it's a really good way for me to express myself. Let's put it that way. And it's it's dark. Darker in a lot of ways than I've ever been. Because it's, you know, if any of you here have children, then you understand what I'm talking about you know like you would i would kill any motherfucker sorry for my language again but it's it's passionate you know just you know even blink at my son wrong and that's it i don't give a shit you know and if you're you're a parent you understand so um the idea of anything ever happening to him on this planet and you can't protect him you can't wrap him in bubble wrap with a helmet you you know you can't do that you can't put a bulletproof vest on your 4-year-old or can you <laughs> <laughs> anyway let's let's bring the conversation back up <laughs> so when you listen to the record though you'll be like okay there's a song there's a song called Zero Tolerance she talks all about it Kiss Shirt that's what I wear when I'm home with my son I'm hopping around my house like a fruitcake. I got I got ropes hanging from the ceiling like we did on that State of Euphoria stage, swinging around like an idiot. <laughs> um, no, because that's who we were. That's who we were back then. That's I was wearing those shorts all day long. It's not like I was changing into those shorts to go on stage. That would have been... Then I would have been like, what the hell were we thinking? But... The fact that, I mean, that's what I wore every day all the time. I wore those shorts because it would be hot out. And and when it wasn't hot, I'd wear Levi's. And then I would put my shorts on because it would be hot inside to play a show. So it just made sense to me that that's what I would wear on stage. Before we had the shorts – on the Fistful of Metal record on that first ever tour we did in 84, Neil Turbin was the singer and he had a very strong vision of what he wanted the band to be. And that was like more in the Judas Priest vein. And we were all wearing leather pants and these big metal heavy belts and all that. And it just didn't make sense to me because I couldn't move. And being on stage for me has always been very physical and th- that crap was weighing me down. And as soon as Neil was out, all that stuff was in the trunk in the closet and I was on stage in my shorts and a t shirt. Because then I can move and I always likened it to, well, you're not going to ask a basketball player to wear Doc Martens and leather pants. It just doesn't make sense. So um, it's just who we were at the time. I still wear shorts all day long. If If it's hot out, they're just not as colorful anymore. If I could find those old school jams, I'd probably rock the shit out of those now. Sadly, they're probably on eBay for $500 now. And I threw them all out back in the day. So stupid me. No that's our adidas suits that those old adidas suits are worth a shit ton of money, and I still have some of the anthrax stuff we had made back back then because Adidas would make you know like special anthrax adidas stuff for us but um no that stuff i wouldn't wear that stuff on that stuff's way too hot super heavy polyester crap what i can what am I wearing i don 't remember am I wearing shorts? Then it, that's then that's what I was wearing. <laughs> I think there's some really awesome photos in here. Yes, there's very colorful ones in that photo. Yes. He said, "In the in the time I worked with VH1, I've been put into several supergroups Two. I only know the one. I did a TV show. Oh, but that was just no. That the Kiss thing was just for they. They had that VH1 Rock Honors thing. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, it was. Fu- we ruled, and we had Ace Frehley as our lead guitar player." Well, one of them with slash two, but um yeah, that was great. No, there was no chance of that ever going on that was just that was actually put together, just you know obviously for the t v show and the you know the this is the best the reason why that why we were put together as a super group for kiss, if you notice the other bands that had their tributes, it was done by other bands, but <laughs> when v h one went to gene Simmons and said. We're going to honor you at this rock honors thing, you know, and uh, um, we'd like to know, you know, we have these other bands in mind to do the tribute for you on the show. And he said, No band is big enough. <laughs> no band is big enough to honor Kiss. <laughs> so that's where the idea of a super group came into play. So I get the call from my buddy at VH1 in the talent department said, Hey, do you want to be part of this thing? We're doing rock honors for Kiss and and we're putting a band together. And so far we've got Slash and Tommy Lee and we think Rob Zombie's going to sign on. And, you know, do you want... Are you in? I'm like, of course I am. He goes, all right, we we have to ask Gene and Paul because everything has to be run by them. And then he told me the story about no band is big enough. And uh, he goes, so we have to get the okay on all the individual musicians to make sure you're big enough like or something... (laughs) I'm like, oh great, so you already told me and now they might say no. <laughs> That's going to feel awesome. you know. <laughs> but obviously they said yeah because I got, But then, so then when Gene and Paul okayed it and then I said, hey, can I play bass because Gene's always been my favorite so that would be my personal tribute because I'd love, as I'm normally obviously a guitar player but you already got slashed there, you don't need me and then of course they said we're going to have Ace too. I'm like, you don't need me on guitar. Let me play bass. And uh, um, so that was awesome. And then I got to play that axe bass because I emailed Gene and thanked him for letting me be a part of <laughs> this thing. I literally said, thank you so much for letting me be a part of this. It's fucking awesome. And uh, and by the way, do you have any axe basses that I could borrow? Because I would love to play the axe bass. And, and he wrote me back and said, I actually only have like two of my real ones Around right now, and we're going on tour right after this. So, uh, I, you could borrow it for the show, but I can't let you keep it. I was like, I don't, I wasn't expecting to keep it. I just want to play it at the thing. And he wrote back, he goes, Of course, of course, because they played right after. He goes, So, just you'll play it, and then my tech will take it back and tune it, and then I'll use it in the show. And I'm like, Yeah, yeah thank you. You know, awesome. So, I played the axe bass for the thing, and th- it was so sick that night because. You know, we're on stage doing God of Thunder. We're fucking doing that thing. And I'm looking over to the side of the stage, and Gene and Paul are standing there in full makeup because they're going to go on right after us. And there's Ace on stage with us. So there's Ace and Gene and and Paul, and I'm just, I'm like trying not to shit my pants. Just like... (laughs) (laughs) And I'm friends with all of them, but still. I, I look over and I see Gene and Paul in makeup, and I'm instantly 11... Like, and I don't even know how to play guitar yet. Like, how am I playing a kiss song? I, I'm 11. I didn't even learn this song. But uh, it was kind of mind blowing. And then walk off stage and have Gene and Paul like high fiving you and giving you a hug. And it was like, wow, this is crazy. And, and I got really, really drunk with Ace Freely that night, and, uh, which was fun. And then he went in the rehab again right after. <laughs> he wasn't supposed to be drinking, it was crazy. But uh, what are you going to say to him? Hey, you're not supposed to, I'm not going to fucking say that to Ace Freely, You fucking nuts. (laughs) But then two weeks later, two weeks later, I'm just like, whatever, just home. Middle of the day, the doorbell rings and I open up and there's a messenger guy there and he's got a guitar case. And uh, uh, he said, yeah, delivery for Scott Ian and sign. And I signed the thing. I'm like, I wasn't expecting anything. It wasn't a Jackson guitar case. And, and uh, I open it up and it's the Axe base with a note saying hey you know just got back from tour here it is I'm like, like oh my god right so I email him I was like dude like I didn't I, he's like yeah you did such a great job and you know please it's my pleasure to, to give this to you I was like oh my god that's amazing so I went not long after I went and met him at his office and brought it in there so he could sign it for me and he signed to a powerful and attractive man, <laughs> Gene Simmons. <laughs> he's the fucking best. That guy's gone above and beyond since 1987 when I first met him. He's treated me like like, like he should treat a Kiss fan, <laughs> like a guy who spent a lot of money on them over the years. No, I mean he's really gone above and beyond. Another just quick story because I know you're going to enjoy it. Um, uh, and then i 'll get into the other super group thing, so in ninety six when kiss did i 'm obviously a kiss fan <laughs> in ninety six when kiss did the reunion tour when it was first you know they 're coming back, and uh I got fucking super excited I, oh my god yeah i haven 't seen because I gave up on kiss you know i, I was the I, same way I gave up on the Yankees, I was done after a live two I was done I was out of kiss as as hard as I was into them. Like I was done. Alive two came out finished. I was just like, something changed. I don't know. It was cause I was getting into heavier stuff. You know, I was like 15 and like, so I was like getting into like Judas priest and motorhead and like other stuff was coming out and, and, uh, but something changed. And especially when the other guys were leaving and I was out of it. Like I don't own a kiss record after Alive live two. Why? Well, I, sorry. I, I got the solo records too, but, uh, um, I was out of it. And, uh, but now here they're coming back in ninety six original line of makeup i'm like, oh man i'm I am into this right, like so excited I'm going to a lot of these shows for sure so uh, I went to a bunch of the shows, but the one little story i i am going to tell you is so um I had a contact at doc McGee's office, their manager, where you know i could I could email and say if I'm coming to a show and they they would take care of it and be super cool, right and uh but I'm, i 'm decided we 're going to go to the Vegas show, and it 's like ten of us going, so i don 't expect free tickets for ten of us there 's just that's you don 't ask for that if it 's just two it 's okay but but i I sent an email saying we just want to get good seats. Ten of us are driving to Vegas in an r v we 're spending the weekend we 're just going to go nuts, and uh, uh, I just want to be able to get good tickets, so you know can you just at least hold some good tickets for us and we 're going to buy them? And uh, my contact, yeah, no problem. You gotta, you know, come to this hotel at two in the afternoon, and we'll have. That's where we're doing the guest list, and blah blah blah. So I show up at two in the afternoon, like whatever it was, the, the Mandalay I think or MGM, I don't remember. But there's kind of a little line of people in the hallway, and you, you know to, to walk in where you you go pick up your tickets. And I got a big pocket full of cash, figuring I'm buying ten tickets. And right in front of me in line is Brett Michaels from Poison. <laughs> Right, and I don't know the guy at all. Then I don't know him, and so and there was none of the like, "Hi, how are you?" There was none of that. Just kind of keep minding my own business, and and uh, and he walks in and he he sees the lady from McGee's management, and they know each other. He knows Sandy, and hey, Sandy, whatever. And so she takes out the envelope with his tickets and all that, and she's like, "Okay, Brad, it's going to be," and she says, "However much it's going to be for because the, there was a no comp tour, that was the thing." That's how a lot of tours run for a long time. Big tours, no comps. But if you know someone in the band, there's comps. And uh, but she says, "Here's." And he's like, "Well, what do you mean? I, I thought I was getting my." I'm sorry, but you know, there's no comps. And it kind of get turns into a thing. And he's like, "Well, oh, he doesn't want to pay for his tickets. It's, I can't give you the tickets. It's, There's no comps. I'm sorry, Brett. I'm sorry. You know, there's nothing I could do about it. And you know, and so finally, like, he whips out his wallet and he pays for his tickets. And I'm just kind of sitting there the whole time just thinking it's kind of funny watching the dude from Poison argue over paying for Kiss tickets. (laughs) And uh, so I walk up and I'm like, hey, Sandy, how are you? Hey, Scott. And she goes through the thing and she pulls out my envelope and she looks up and she goes, wow, Gene must love you. I said, why? She goes, he comped all 10 of your tickets. I was like, did Brett Michaels hear that? I was like... (laughs) (laughs) I was, he was already long gone but I was so ex- I was like you're fucking kidding me and we had 10 second row center seats and for a half a second I thought about charging my friends and making a bunch of cash on the deal but <laughs> I didn't <laughs> also on that tour Madison Square Garden I've got pretty good seats right in the loge like right like second row off the floor perfect sight line of the stage. They did like three nights at the Garden. And uh, I had tickets for every night. I went to 10 shows on that reunion thing in 96. And uh, I got loads. Really great seats. And I'm standing backstage before the show. I was actually standing there with Sebastian Bach. We're just shooting the shit backstage. And uh, Doc McGee walks up to us. Hey, guys. Hey, Doc. What's going on? And he's like, nothing not super excited in New York City. I'm like, I know. I was here in 77. like... like I'm gonna lose my mind. I'm gonna lose my mind tonight, you know. And and uh, he's like, "What seats you got?" I'm like, "Loads, like second row loads." He goes, "Let me see." And he takes my tickets, and he looks at Sebastian. He goes, "What seats you got?" And he had like tickets just a couple seats away. He takes Sebastian's ticket, and he hands us first row center. The two of us, at, we both started crying, like just like <laughs> little kids. We were first row center at Madison Square Garden. They came on, they opened with Deuce. I was bawling my eyes out. Because, ni- I mean, 1977 is that I was at that show. Same thing. I wasn't first row center, I was about 14 miles away. But uh, still, that was the night that made me want it. Like, I, that's it. I'm going to be in a band. You know, it was just like the, one of the most important nights of my life. And here I am, like, in that same place. And it was just insane. You know, it was just like unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, it was a. I don't know how I got off on the kiss tangent, but uh, oh, yeah, because of the, the rock honors thing. And then Supergroup, the TV show, uh, we wanted it to go on. We truly did. We wanted to make a record. Uh, we were hoping to get to do shows, but VH1 kind of had it set up so crappily that they didn't. That what they should have done was they should have made sure that we were all free for a month after the filming ended because then we could have went in the studio and, and maybe not even a full record but even just an EP something to go along with the show where we could have had four or five six songs maybe um, together and actually went and recorded with it but like the day that show was done Ted was off I was off like we all we all had shit to do. So there was just no way for us. We tried, we, we really gave it a valiant effort. We were sending pro tools sessions around on the, a couple of demos. We would send them and I would record some guitars and Baz would sing some stuff, but there was just really no way to keep it together. And, um, I wish like VH1 would have said, "Look, we need you guys for two weeks in Vegas, and then we need you for a month because you're going to go in and make a record." And I'm sure everybody would have freed up their schedules to do that, but it just that's not the way they set it up. So I, I wish we could have. It would have been really cool to have something, you know, to really, you know, to remember that by. Other, I mean. Other than my memories, and there's a TV show that exists out there, but it would have been actually cool to get in a real room and 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 bang some stuff out with those dudes. It would have been cool. Worship music was was pretty awesome. How do you go into the studio after all these years and just just keep cranking out something that sounds so fresh? You really have that strong Denver accent. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't fly here for this, did you? Can you imagine I'm going all the way to Denver from the southern hemisphere <laughs> just for this <laughs> um how do we he how do after worship music and coming back with that record? How do we keep it fresh? Is that what you, your your question was um, phew, shit, if I knew the answer to that, my life would be so much easier. You know, look, the best answer I could give you is we just love what we do. Um I think that's any band, any band that still wants to make records that still wants to deal with traveling and go play shows, we just love it. We love it so much. I love getting to do this and I say getting because it's not it's it's not like uh, it's not a rule. It's not the law that, you know, like there's not this expectation. We get to do this because of you guys. That's right. If everybody stopped caring about anthrax, there, there, would, there would be no more anthrax. Same for every band. If people stop showing up at your shows, then you, you, you're not a band anymore. If people don't care. And so we still get to do this, you know. And uh, granted, uh, we work really hard to make sure we still get to do it and that means being the best live band we could be and and making the best records we could make and and we're just as much fans of it as you guys are of our own music of other bands music we're still this, those same kids that we were in 1981 when the band started I'm still that much of a, a jackass about, about about all of it about the bands I love about metal I still have the same arguments with my friends and we're 51 years old now we still have the same stupid arguments about who's better, you know? Like, seriously, me and Eddie Trunk, Chris Jericho and Brian Posehn, all these dudes, will still get in a room and argue about Priest and Maiden all night long. Like, I know. I mean, I, my, I, always, I always try and be the dude. It's like, why, do we have, why can't you just have both? No one's ever going to put a gun to your head for that reason. It's never going to happen. You're never going to walk down a street and feel Click. Oh, shit. Uh, take my wallet, please. I, I have children. Please don't... N- no, 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 no. Who's better? <laughs> Priest or maiden? I'd be like, fuck you. I'm not telling you. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm still that same kid. That never changes. It doesn't change, you know. Everything else in your life changes. Yet somehow... That thing, this thing about music, uh, and I don't know if it works in other genres. I I gotta assume if you were 13 and you got into Miles Davis and you're 51 now, then jazz still fucking gets you the same way. Or, you know what I mean? But I I think the music that you get into it as a kid that becomes your passion and that you love for the rest of your life. I mean, I, I have to, you know, that it never changes it's never changed for me obviously it's never changed for a lot of you in this room you wouldn't be here otherwise so um you all understand that feeling so it's the same thing for us we're such big fans of it of what we do and and what we expect of ourselves and what we want what we want the people that love anthrax to hear you know and uh um that's the best way i can describe you know knowing how we sound and keeping it fresh and and just trying to make a record that we haven't made already and not repeating ourselves. That works great for some bands. It works great for ACDC. You know what I mean? That works great for Slayer. I mean, that's that's their thing. Carrie's even said it. We're the AC D C of Thrash Metal, you know? There's an expectation there. You know, you know what you're gonna get when you, you get an A C D C record or a Slayer record and some other bands. It's different for 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 us. We're not that we're not that type of band. And um, Uh, You know, uh, um, we just work really, really hard at it. That's the best thing I could say. And um, we, We feel really privileged and just have endless gratitude for the fact that we still get to do this. So the last thing we ever want to do is disappoint anyone. So when we got to come back with Worship Music after eight years of no record, granted a lot of touring in those eight years, but come back with a record and have it be accepted so well and connected to so big around the world, you know, That's shit you don't forget. So going into this record, it really, really was a big fire under our asses, you know, because besides the fact that we're so happy we're doing it again, but we also, you know, fuck, we got to make a, we got to top that shit, and that's a great record, so. But we did it once before in our, our lives. We made Spreading the Disease, and then we came back with Among the Living, so, and there's so many scenarios that are similar this time around. Spreading was Joey's first record you know, and then we came back with among where of music was Joey's first record back in the band. And now we're on. like, there's so many similarities that, like in our, in our history. And it's kind of weird. And if I say so myself, I, I know the record we have cause we started mixing a few days ago and it's fucking rules. <laughs> so I think you're going to be happy. That's all I could say. It's, it's really exciting to listen to it. And, and, and hear the shit that you'll all be... There'll be one new song out. We're we're going on tour together with Slayer, October, November, December in Europe, and uh, we're going to have the first new song out from the record will be out end of October, and um, I think you're going to like it. ACDC. We've never done a show with ACDC. We've never been on a festival even on a separate day. Like it's not even like we've been on Download and they were on the Friday and we were on the Sunday. We can even say that we re- we've never even been on that. Like we've never done a show. We came close this past summer we th- there was for a minute it looked like Sonosphere in the UK maybe was going to have them and we would have been on it and but that all ended up falling apart and we needed to stay home anyway to finish the record and they ended up not doing Sonosphere but no it's never happened. And uh I hear that they're coming back again in sixteen for a whole nother big run and then that's gonna be it. But so fingers crossed we'll get to at least play one show somewhere with A C D C. Who? Well you think everybody just if you're from Australia, they all just You guys just totally hang out, right? Sure. Yeah. They just everyone knows each other. I actually just quickly years ago when I got these tattoos done, it was done on that uh, Kat Von D show, her her TV show. And the night before I'm going in to get the tattoos done and shoot the show, the producer from the show calls me and says, so we've gotten permission from the label to show the Highway to Hell album cover because that's where the imagery's from. So the Atlantic Records has given us permission to show it on the show, but we don't have the band's permission, so can you call ACDC and get permission? <laughs> I said, what? Wait, hold on. What did she just say? She said, can you call ACDC and get permission, I said, like, there's some hotline. (laughs) There's some phone number, like, to call, or like, I happen to have Angus's number in my phone. Like, are you fucking crazy? Like, there's some clubhouse we all hang out at after work. How was work today, Malcolm? (laughs) Good? Yeah, me too. Like, I said, you realize I could probably get the president on the phone sooner than I could get Angus and Malcolm. She's like, well, I just thought because you were in the music business, I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) It ended up, our lawyer actually knew their lawyer, and it took about three hours, and their lawyer ended up signing off on it, which was cool, and that made me think, somewhere, somehow, maybe Angus and Malcolm knew that some... Stupid guy in Anthrax was getting their faces tattooed on his body, and they'd be like, "Keep that guy away from us forever." <laughs> even that, even being on the radar in that way, would have been cool. Hit <laughs> hey, You and then you, and then that's it. Just curious, what is your uh, favorite uh, Stephen King story, and are you going to write any more uh, Stephen King songs? There's Stephen King theme songs on the new record. Yes. It might be hard. They're not obvious. Like I didn't write a song called The Stand. (laughs) That was called, that was Among the Living. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, there are a lot of, there are some themes on the record. There are a couple of references to that if you really dig deep into the lyrics, you might get it. Um, um, And then what was the first part of the question? Um, Oh, favorite? (laughs) Uh. Favorite King story and why? Um, well, if I had to pick an overall thing, I would say the dark tower series just cause it's seven books. So there, I don't have to pick one. Um, cause just the, the whole thing. I love it. I love it so much. I've read it. I think three times that whole thing, you know, it's that and Lord of the Rings are my two big Epic things. If I had to pick one book, I would say the stand, I guess. Um, Oh, well, I'm a big, big fan of *Salem's Lot* and a whole bunch of other shit too. Eleven twenty-two sixty-three. I don't know if you read that one, but it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, I love *Mr. Mercedes* too. I, I I love it all. Well, not all of it. There was a couple of Tommy Knockers is kind of crap, but <laughs> I think he even he says that. What was the uh, experience with *Death Clock* in New York like? what Oh man, Do you guys all know what *Death Clock* is. *Metalocalypse*. Brendan Small is a good friend of mine, the guy who creates and writes all that st- insanity. And, uh, and, uh, Brendan and I went to Woodstock over the summer where they have this thing called the Paul Green Rock Academy. Paul Green is the guy who started the School of Rock. He's the guy in that documentary, if, if you've ever seen that. He's that crazy dude. And, uh, so we went to the Paul. He, he sold that brand a while ago, and then a couple. He now he's got the Paul Green Rock Academy, and he's he's even opening like a proper music college, like a Berkeley up in Woodstock. And I'm actually going to be a teacher there. But um, Brendan and I went to Woodstock and taught this metal camp for a week. So we had like 25 kids ranging in the age from nine to sixteen. So we had like the band camp kids who we'd work with all day long, and they had to write original songs and all that, and that was a blast. But then we had the show band kids, who their thing was they were learning the whole Doomstar Requiem, and that's that was the final episode that so, of season four, And you know that whole forty five minute piece of music. Put it this way, Brendan. He he's never done it. He's never performed that whole thing live, even with his band. When he goes out, he's only done a few of the songs. He said it would be, it would be a challenge to even do it with Death Clock with Gene Hoglan on drums, you know, and Mike Keneally. It would be a challenge for him to do it with them, let alone a bunch of twelve year olds, right? And somehow he 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 you know I was in I wasn't teaching that. I was in the band. I was playing guitar on a lot of it, but he fucking pulled that off and these kids pulled it off. I mean, at any given time you had 14 kids on stage singing the big choir parts and it was unbelievable. It was an amazing experience and and uh, uh um for me that week of teaching the kids was a life change. There was the next to Yankee Stadium might be the other coolest thing I've ever done in my life. I've never taught before and it it was an amazing amazing life-changing experience. I had so much fun and uh it's something I'm doing it again in December. I'm going back to Woodstock to spend three days with these kids again and uh, I'm putting together like a curriculum uh, uh, of what we're gonna do and uh, like I said Paul's opening like a proper music college and I'm, I'm gonna run that fucking metal department like, <laughs> like that's it like I know like now like my plan is it's it when I can't tour anymore it's gonna be Professor Ian that's where I'll be <laughs> cause I swear man hanging out with these kids and man, some of the, these kids, man, shredders. I'm talking about like 11-year-olds who are just like ripping on guitar and tearing it up on drums. And like, and that's their lives. And they're, they're in this place every day jamming and learning songs and doing this. And I'm like, oh my God, if I had this when I was a kid. And dudes like me and other people who show up from bands to teach. Like what a mind-blowing experience to have something like that. I'm like, I want to do this as much as I can. All I want to do is give to these kids and just be there and like it was just such an amazing thing to see just the whole experience I'll start crying it's hard to talk about it was like it was amazing having a kid turns you into a big a big cry baby <laughs> basically as a dad being a dad. it's just like, it's, it just changes everything and hanging out with these kids and my son's going to go in the drum program next year. And like, it's just, it, it was nuts. So I loved it. It was great. And thank you all for your questions. That's all for tonight's author on tour. I'm Darren Fode, and We have been podcasting live from the tattered cover bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.